0: but I have noticed there are major changes that are going on in the world of work today. It's very confusing, it's hard to navigate for people who are internal to an organization, but especially for consultants and coaches who are trying to help out those organizations. So if you wanna learn more about the trends and how to adapt your consulting and coaching to make a bigger difference in today's crazy work world, you're definitely gonna wanna listen to this episode of the Enough Already podcast. And welcome to the Enough, Up Ready podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan. I'm a business mentor and a brand messaging strategist for remarkable consultants and coaches and their unique strengths. And today I have a very special guest on the show. My guest is Andre Martin, and we worked together, what, a thousand years ago back at Disney. And since then, he has done amazing work. In terms of as a consultant and as an entrepreneur and as a author, and he's got an amazing book about wrong fit right fit, and why the way we work matters today and I decided to bring him on the show because he's going to demystify all of these changes that are going on the world of work and give us some practical strategies on how to help it. Or how to make a difference today. Maybe not help it. We can't really change the trends, but how to make a difference in this crazy world. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Andre.
1: Betsy, it's wonderful to be here. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me.
0: So um, it has been a thousand years. So we worked together, I think, back in 2000, 2001 at Walt Disney World as OD Consultants. Um, Before we talk about your book and all the amazing insights that you've developed in your career since then, I want to go back in time a little bit. So you have been an organizational psychologist and you chose this particular career many, many years ago. So tell me a little bit about what drew you to this profession, like why organizational psychology, why organization development, and how does that fit with your BA in political science? Because I think (laughs) it does, because I have a BA in history and I thought very seriously about getting a minor in political science. So tell me a little bit more about your background.
1: I will, Betsy. It's a super generous question. So I started, um, if I look all the way back, this started for me due to my parents. I grew up with two college professors and- they took us to a tiny town in the Ozark mountains where they taught at a school that gave free education to rural youth. And so if you went to school here, you were qualified, you had this ability to go to college, but you couldn't afford it. Hmm. You went there and you had a free debt-free education. And so I just grew up in this world where I'm like, education's the greatest equalizer on earth. Yes. Greatest equalizer for corporations, for countries, for governments, for you know, everything. And so I became really sort of enamored at a young age about just the power of knowledge. And I think that's probably what took me into the field in the end was that sort of hunger to to bring that to the world. I had to stop at, you know, Miami of Ohio to study political science, but it's it's super similar, right? They're both really ultimately about the motivations and psychology of people in systems. And mm-hmm. so- even though I didn't know that then again, that probably spurred that on those great debates. There's no right or wrong. It comes down to sort of the zeitgeist of the culture and what people in the conversation are talking about and who wins those arguments, right? That's basically politics in a nutshell. Um, And then I just, I found organizational psychologists because of my first job, I was in Colorado and I was working at a high-tech company before it was popular. And we brought in an organizational psychologist to help us grow. And literally, I sat through my interview, which was very much about my job, my role, my part in the company. And I walked out of an interview having peppered that person with questions about how they do what they do. And I walked out the next day, quit, took 20-some hours of psychology, got myself into grad school. The rest is history.
0: Okay, so this is so exciting to me, um, because I, this is why I love my podcast so much is I get to know people at a deeper level. And it's like, wait, wait a minute, we have so much in common, because that was similar to how I was thinking about when I was a history major, but also how I got into OD is like, there's just something about this fascination and meeting someone who did it, and asking a lot of questions. But there's something that I feel like you said, that's very consistent that I noticed around all consultants and coaches who are really good. And it's two things like one is this hunger to learn, like education, love of learning is really important. And the second is systems thinking. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about like those two elements and why do you think that is, those are two key, the key things that make really great consultants and coaches and like why they are set apart from all the other consultants and coaches.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first one around curiosity and a thirst for knowledge. I mean, in the end, after 20 some years in this field, I've never faced the same challenge twice. Mm. Right. And so there's just never been enough tools. And and the great consultants, the ones that I've always admired, never let themselves become sort of, you know, terrible phrase, but a one trick pony. You know, they have that one thing they do really well. They do it and they do it and they do it and it's all they know. So every time they come to a problem, they already have the solution and it's just trying to get the other person to believe that their solution is the right one. And I've always, you know, tackled it the other way, which is in a system, it's all up for grabs, right? I mean, it could change literally tomorrow. And so you have to have a wide angle lens. You have to help your client take a deep breath, take three steps back look at the world and ask yourself what you're solving for right now. And to do that, you have to just have systems theory. You have to be curious and you have to be able to bring the latest knowledge to them to help them be as educated as possible. And that's really what I've always tried to do. It's what the consultants that I've admired do. And it's, it's what really allows you to be relevant beyond the first three meetings you have with the client. Cause after that pretty much everyone's tapped their expertise Right? So in order to continue to have value, you have to continue to get better at your craft every day.
0: So you've been doing a lot of different things and getting better at your craft every day. So I know that you had left Disney, you went and worked in a variety of different roles. I think that you work for a consulting firm, you've had your own consulting business. Like what has, you know, like what's been the thematic element of your career path? Like, has it been more independent? Is it working for other people? Like tell me a little bit more about what you've been up to since since our Disney days.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Disney helped me in many ways, Betsy, shape what my cause is. Right. And that cause is, I just believe there's a better way to run a company. Right. I believe you can make a gob of money if that's what you want to do. And you can actually build a system that when people walk in, they walk out healthier. Now we're nowhere near that today, right? Wait but in
0: the actually, wait a minute. Drive- wait, wait. I just need to understand this. You're saying that you can walk into the work world and come out healthier.
1: I believe that. I 100 believe that's possible. And there's wow. there's really great examples of where it's it's happened, or it's been happening, or it's starting to happen. And somebody is going to do it right. Back in the you know 90s when we started, it probably wasn't possible. There wasn't the technology. There wasn't the know-how. There wasn't the self-awareness, frankly. And now I just. I'm watching the world. I'm like, someone's going to figure this thing out and I'm I'm ready to help, right? No matter what. So I think that, you know, that's been the driving force is just that cause. And it took me first through a lot of big companies, right? You have to go see the best places to work to help create a better place to work. So I, I went to, and I got lucky, right? I went to Disney. I went to a place called the Center for Creative Leadership. I got to spend seven years at Mars, one of the biggest privately held firms in the world, Then I went to Nike and Target and Google and just saw these systems, these systems that in many ways, Betsy, in my mind, they're like, they were once great places to work. Now they've suffered the same thing we all suffer is, you know, growth puts pressure on culture. Yes. So I sort of did that for a long time. Then I thought about it and towards the latter part of my career, I started thinking, you know, maybe the place to do some work is at the very start get all the way back to where they're forming and help those leaders have so much grounding in how to build a strong culture and how to build a better company that they don't lose themselves as they grow. And so that's been the last couple of years, really working with a lot of founders, a lot of early stage companies, trying to just get those foundations in. So they you know they continue to be great companies. They continue to be bigger and bigger brands.
0: I love your, your idea of like taking really great principles and scaling them for a a startup company size. And I also really love what you're talking about with really equipping those founders. Like one of the things that I know and we work with those founders and they work with them on maybe the financial side or the fundraising side. And one thing that I have been trying to encourage them to do is that you can't just get a company to be successful to think that that's what an investor wants or even a future buyer. You have to build the business underneath the business. And it feels like that that's like something that you're bringing to the table that you could really partner with other consultants and coaches or are trying to help people at that startup is build a business underneath the business so you can set up your culture right, which even if that company lasts for a long time or somebody else purchases it, you still have a healthy culture.
1: 100%, and you know, one of the things that I always worry about with all of us consultants out in the world is we come with a pretty narrow focus. <clears throat> even though we're systems thinkers, right? I do my work in culture and leadership and strategy, and then there's someone that does the work in finance and supply chain. And you know, there's a part of me that just I I wonder if we wouldn't be a lot more powerful together. One of the things I've seen some really cool practices is, you know, there's a lot of companies starting to say, "Hey, why don't we pull these people together, mm-hmm. build a community of consultants? So as they help us, they are naturally sort of additive to each other, as opposed to maybe running crosswise or or creating interference in each other's work. And I, I'm just like, man, that's so brilliant. Like we do all this work in finance to set really good POs, to manage the scale of all our consultants, but we don't necessarily bring them together and yes. say, Hey, like, I wonder what you could do if you're sitting in the same room. I wonder how the work might look and feel different. I wonder my, what you might be able to tell us about our company because of all the vantage points you have. So that's something I'm also trying to do is trying to say, hey, if there's other consultants in there, how do we how do we start sort of holding hands to really help build a better system?
0: You know, one of the things I did last year is I launched what I call my Purpose to Profits Academy, which is my mastermind community. And that was my whole idea because I don't consult anymore, but now I help other consultants and coaches and I want to bring them together. And it's sort of like the idea of like when we were at Disney, what I thought made Disney so great is everybody was really great at what they did. And we all were experts, but we were always collaborating and we are always partnering. You know, So if you have a project that's like redefining the pricing whole idea, you didn't just have a pricing person there. You had a marketing person there. You had a no D kind of person there. You had all of them together and that collaboration really created the best result. So I love that vision and I share that vision that you have for that. I do want to talk to you a little bit more about what motivated you to write? I know like I have actually, there's two questions. Like what motivated you to write a book and why the topic of your book? So can you talk a little bit about as you were, you were, um, you know, throughout your journey, like why did you decide to become an author first? And then tell me a little bit more about your book and why this particular topic?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I'm an accidental author really. So at some point was I planning to someday maybe write a book for sure. But what happened to me is that about a year and a half ago, I had a publisher come to me and say, hey, you know, we've seen you speak, we've seen you doing your thing, we'd love to branch out into this space of culture, and have a conversation with the world around how works changing and what we need to do to make it better. And so I'm like, great, I've been doing culture work my whole life. I'm like, I'd love to write a book on culture, right? The five best practices, whatever it was going to be. And what was really interesting is I'm a total geek at heart, right? I'm a researcher, I'm an organizational psychologist. So I go out and I'm like, I'm happy to write a book, but I'm not ready to tell you what it's going to be. Let me go out and just start asking some questions and see where I end up. <laughs> oh, and gosh. what happened, Betsy, was really fascinating is I start to ask all these questions around culture what makes a great culture? What makes a great company? You've been there for 20 years. Why are you there? What's different? And what became really clear is two things. One is no company sets out to create a bad experience for their people. It's counterintuitive to business, right? Just, it would make no sense. Nobody's trying to do it, but it's happening to a lot of people. And I think secondly is there's no one way to do it. You know, in all these conversations, the thing that kept coming up is it was different. What people were keen in on was different. And that got me to this place of, hey, maybe it's not about good or bad culture engaging or toxic environments maybe it's about right or wrong fit does the company really know who they are at their best and when they do does this talent work the way they like to work and if not you lose disengagement but if it's there man it's something to see right it's just it's crazy how it feels to do work when you're in alignment to the way a company works every day and so that started me off on these interviews about a hundred and I don't know, 20 or 30 at this point, that were really two simple questions. Tell me about a time when you were working in a company and you had this deep and authentic dedication and alignment to how it worked every day, right? Every day you walked in, how work got done just felt really natural to you. And then tell me about a time when that wasn't true. And those conversations were just fascinating. And so that sort of got me, it was because co- it was because of those interviews that got me really writing the book because there was so much um, so much catharsis in the conversation. So many people saying, I've been holding on to this wrong fit experience for so long, thinking I wasn't a success, thinking I wasn't good enough. And now I can take a step back and say it was never the right place for me. It's not wow. that it's a bad place, it just wasn't right for me. And they finally had language for it. And that's really what then got me rocking and rolling on the book and kind of ended up in the in the book that's on the market now
0: you know, so there's something that I, lo- I love what you're saying is like taking a step back and making something like more value neutral, like there are for sure, I, you know, my experience as a consultant, there's definitely some cultures that I've been, I'd advise to you that were toxic, you know, just in general, but on the whole, not every company is like that. You know, it's yeah. like, it's value neutral and it's like either it fits or it doesn't. So I love the fact that you could take a step back and have no judgment about it. And then take take more of a discerning approach, like when, you know, going back to like when we were OD consultants, you know, back at Disney, you know, our little team is we were very, we're autonomous kind of people, we do our own thing, and then they made changes with our leadership structure to be much more micromanagey like for our team, and our team revolted because it did not work for us because it did not align. But if you're talking about a different kind of organization where the collaborative environment was the most important, like then it would have been a fit. And I love the fact that you're just like identifying uh, like what's the fit.
1: Betsy, you hit the thing that mattered most to me is like, everybody wants to blame somebody these days employees want to blame the company for the reason why you know life's hard and they're disengaged and burnout and all the rest and companies want to blame, blame employees for not being productive enough not coming to the office enough and i'm like i'm like hey the truth is there's a place for everybody companies like relationships with companies are just like marriages right they're long-term commitments and often after a first date i think wow i'm really excited to be in this date by the third or fourth i I'm like i want out mm-hmm we find out about who each other are in our day-to-day life the more we find if we're compatible and so I wanted to write this book to say stop blaming each other right and down to the fact that like performance conversations always have been the bane of my existence in in companies I'm like how can you sit in a tell someone their number and b tell them that they weren't a success because they're not a high performer when, in fact, they've had these wonderful careers where they've been fantastic rock stars for all these years. And now you're going to bring that sort of um, insecurity into their life. When, in fact, it's like, hey, they're probably good. They probably just don't fit your brand of crazy. Right. right? They just don't fit the way you like to work. And if that's the conversation, that's OK. That's generative. That's like, let's either get to you to a different team or let's get you to a different company so you can go be a success. Right. But it's it's shared sort of blame and shared recognition that a system works that way. Right. And two things have happened. And I, you know, I'll stop for a minute. But on the company side, most companies that become toxic, it's because they've actually lost how they worked when they were at their best. Every time we bring in a talent, they bring in all this great technical skill. You know what else they bring? All their cultural baggage. All their favorite ways of working their favorite principles and platforms and so they inherently change the culture. And so often those toxic cultures aren't the company. They're whatever this sort of narrowed function that you're working in the leader at the top probably from the outside probably brought their own way of working in and, and now you're sitting there going hey the place I used to work. It's just not the same.
0: Well, it seems like it requires you to be a lot more self-aware, like as a leader and somebody who's going into a culture to say, here's what's a good fit and make more choices. Like not every company is going to be a fit for you. Like one of the things that I, I push my clients for when we work on the branding together, the number one thing is figure out your ideal client. And, you know, a lot of consultants and coaches will say like, oh, I could help everybody. I'm like, yeah, but not everybody are you going to do your best work with? like So when I started my business, I got really good advice that I ignored about creating my ideal client. Which was, you know, working with a larger organization, solving the problems when the right and left hand doesn't know what they're doing and they're not on the same page. And I completely forgot about my whole hospitality background at Disney. But then also I grew up in retail. My my parents had a chain of shoe stores all around Chicago. I love that industry and, and customer focused industries. And so then I went and started a consulting business and I have like a sauna buoy company and I have these manufacturing companies where they're like, Oh, come walk the floor. I'm like, Oh, kill me, kill me now. Like, I don't, you know, but then I finally wound up at Wyndham, which they were like, Hey, come walk the floor, which mean come stay overnight in our hotel. I'm yeah. like, okay, now we're talking fit here. <laughs> you know, like now I understand. And my Wyndham My Wyndham um, engagement was by far not just successful in terms of the engagement, but the contacts, the connections that I have since then, because it was a fit. I, my, the way I worked, it was a fit.
1: Yeah, Betsy. I mean, you you know, in the book, it's interesting. I I built all these excursions really for talent to try to get them closer to like, what are you solving for? Mm. What value in big decisions? What's the life that you want to build? What are your superpowers and your shadow sides? What kind of career... Are you looking to have, what are you solving for right now? And I actually think about it now, given your story, I'm like, those excursions can work for consultants and coaches as well. I use them all the time, right? And it's that it's that sort of North Star or rudder that says, hey, I turn down clients often, actually, right? Because for me, it's not enough that, hey, I could do a little bit of good work and make a good amount of money off you. I mean, that's very profitable, and it's just not, you know, my way. As I'm like, hey, I want to make sure I'm the best person to sit across from you in the seat or on a screen, given the limited amount of time you have to get better at your craft. And if not, then it's really, it's a selfish act to take up that space. Um, and often, you know, we only know for the right fit if we do all that hard work about ourselves, because when you have it, I mean, it's not unlike being with, in a company, when you have a right fit with a client, you watch them inherently do the best work of their life. And the other thing that we don't account for, is you actually get better at your craft when you're working with someone that doesn't fit you? You're just you're doing your lowest level work, right? And all of your creative energy is actually going to managing all the things that don't work in your fit with that client. You're managing negative stories. You're managing negative feedback. You're managing, you know, all this stress and tension and and hardship and. If you just didn't choose them, you'd probably be better off. You'd probably be better at your craft. You'd have more fun. You'd be more engaged. Same things that happens to people when they go to companies that don't work.
0: Yeah, because if you're in a company that that's not working for you, like the opportunities that you see, people aren't even going to respond to them. You could proactively advocate, like, let's do X, Y, and Z. They're not going to hear it because it's not a fit. And I think the biggest thing, though, for a lot of people, though, that I imagine is they're listening in, whether they're a consultant or coach, they're a leader, somewhere in there is like that scarcity fear. Like, no, everything could work for me. Any company, you know, any company who needs X, Y, and Z expertise, would, it doesn't really matter. Like the culture doesn't matter as it relates to my performance. How would you speak to that?
1: I would just say, hey, you know, we know it in two ways, right? On, on one side, realize that your creative energy, it's always flowing, right? I'm a firm believer. I don't believe people get blocked. Your energy is always flowing. It's just when you're in wrong things situations, whether you're in a company or as a consultant with a client that just doesn't work or see the world the way you see it, your creative energy just flows to other things. Mm. It flows to managing negative emotions. It flows to creating narratives that are coping strategies to make yourself still feel good, even though the client's not responding to your work. It flows to all the other things you have to think about in order to just get that person on the phone to just take the next step forward. It's exhausting. Right. And so I always tell people, I'm like, hey, just realize your creative energy is flowing. Right. But the more it flows to context, to the coordination of work, to managing a relationship that doesn't work, the less it's flowing to your craft, the less you're doing the best work of your life. And so I just say, hey, it's scarcity one way or the other. Either it's scarcity that if I don't take this client, I might not get another one. Or if I take this client, I might be making myself a smaller version of me, which is I think 10 times worse
0: Oh, that's good it's that's really powerful because what you're what you're really saying here is that scarcity depending on how you define scarcity it's like either self-esteem scarcity or financial scarcity or that's even a, a, a myth because you'll still create more space to attract the right person anyway you know, and I, and I like what you're saying too, because there's this whole belief, like what is a healthy culture and a healthy culture where everyone could show up and do their best work. And what you're saying is it's a healthy culture is a culture where the right people who fit the culture can show up and do the best work. It's not one, again, go back to what you said before. It's not one size fits all. It's about alignment between this is what they're all about and how they roll and how they operate. And here's how I roll and how I operate and we're a match.
1: One hundred percent. You know, it comes down to these simple things. Right. Is when I was talking to talent, Betsy, I mean, the things that we talk about often in cultures, we talk about values and we talk about mission statement and purpose. And I'm like, that's not the stuff that actually matters. Right. What matters is what's it going to feel like on a random Monday afternoon in December when I walk in that office door to do work? How do people set strategy? How do they make decisions? How do they collaborate? How do they kick off team meetings? How do they give feedback, develop people, socialize? Hey, how do how do we think about time, right? Those are the things that actually matter. And those are the places where we never get deep enough in our conversations to know, hey, do you actually work the way I work? Mm. In interview, because interviews are just first dates, right? We're on our best behavior. We're like showing our best resumes. We're dressed at the T's. We've got all the perfect answers. We learn nothing in interviews. And what then happens is we get in the into the job and we're like, hey, the thing I was sold doesn't actually feel like the thing I'm doing. Right. And that happens to consultants as well, right? How many times have we thought, wow, this piece of work is going to be so fun, so interesting, so cutting edge. And then you get into it and it's just like, it's like this narrowed version of what you thought it was going to be. And then you're trapped in this because we didn't do enough diligence about what's really going on, what's really a problem and how ready are people for what we're getting ready to ask them to do.
0: You know, even if you have like two clients, like I had two clients one year, one was Wyndham and we were working on an org design project. And another one was like a 500 person, smaller company working on an org design. Same work, but the, the t- talent and the way they thought was really different at Wyndham. And it was like, wow, I still feel like I'm enjoying it. Even if the projects didn't go every, you know, like let's just say the projects wound up at the same st- ending point, you know, my experience you know, and the relationships and all those other things. I love what you're talking about around this whole thing, because it feels like you're taking this cultural fit to be, it, you're taking it to a deeper level and saying, all right, let's customize it. Let's work on these alignment. This is like a timeless principle, but you're just bringing it to a deeper heart level of like, let's just be in alignment and let's not be judgy about each other. You know, companies are value neutral. So that's timeless. Let's move to like the time-based thing. Because number yeah. one, chapter one in your book is you talk about how the world of work has changed. So yeah. what's going on? What's going on in the world of work?
1: I think there's just some really interesting. So these are interesting trends to me. They may not. They may not be interesting to anyone else. But there's there's a few things that have happened, right? I mean, I think the first is, you know, the pandemic wasn't the cause. It was just a great accelerator of all the stuff that was bubbling up, right? It was all just. It was just acceleration of all these things we'd been inherently feeling, but because the U.S. had been in Literally, I think a decade of the most consistent growth ever recorded, at least in the US, right? It was just a prosperous time. It covered all these sins, right? All these things we weren't talking about, we weren't thinking about, we weren't feeling. And so a few things that have been really interesting to me. I think the first one is that inherently everybody has a different relationship with work in terms of life, right? So scratch all the, it's about three days, two days, how often the office, it's actually that we are redefining this idea of work and life to say, it's not about balance. It's not about trade-offs. It's about, does my job provide me harmony to the way that I want life to work? That's what people are looking for, right? They're looking for that idea of like, it's about this idea of harmony, not balance, which I love. Um, I think a second really important trend is, is we've started to like. We started to create these company brands that are like marketing. They're like beautiful brand campaigns. The culture deck was the worst thing that ever happened to business because we started saying, hey, let's market ourselves as this aspirational great place to work, right? These great values, these great leaders, all this stuff. And it's just not true, right? We're not inherently lying. We wish it was, or on our best days, it's who we are, but it's created this place where what we learn about in recruiting isn't what we end up getting in our day to day and that's just causing havoc like people are losing engagement every day because of the way the system was presented on the front end and how it feels day to day i think another really interesting trend is that at social media you know for all its great gifts and wonderful ways it's going to extend human creativity it has allowed everyone to raise their hat head up and believe there's greener grass Mm. Right. I can find my doppelganger in the world, that consultant or psychologist who's out in the world, seemingly living a better life than me. Now we know it's not true, but that causes us all to have just a little bit of FOMO, which unlocks us from the deep commitment it takes to solve the kind of problems that we're trying to solve today. Um, And that's just three, like there's probably 50 more, but I'll tell you this. I think in the end, like three things are happening in work. One is There's a great reckoning about the part it plays in our lives. There is a new demand for what a great company is going to look and feel like, and flexibility is going to be key. Um, And third, I just think, you know, for all our great work in leadership development and in an OD, we didn't prepare leaders for this moment we don't have really good wartime leaders we don't have people understand how to take these big really complex really giant crazy challenges and actually stand in a place of both strength and vulnerability of both courage and like conservatism you know we just we just don't our leaders weren't ready and that's on us like i don't think we did our best work in the last decade because we had so much ability to just do fun stuff that we ended up not getting a whole generation of leaders ready for this moment.
0: So so I like what you're saying that, but it's interesting. So you're creating the, you're painting a picture that some of the issues that we're having are, the pandemic just more exposed them. So you mentioned something about that we're not interested in work-life balance, but work-life harmony. So what does it mean to ha- want work-life harmony versus work-life balance?
1: I think that's what's the
0: pressure on the organization?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in the past, like, look at you you and I, early in the nineties or our parents, right? Work was primary in terms of my pursuit. It defined most of my identity. It was the big reason for my being. I, you know, I wrapped up everything I am into this job, into this career, into this craft, into this company. I mean, that's everybody's story in the last couple of decades. I think what we're seeing today are people are saying, hey, hold on. Like, maybe I should think about the life I want first, what I value, what I care about, how I want to spend my time, because it's finite. And then I should sort of integrate the kind of work I do into making that life real and making it a reality. It's not about passions or, you know, vision boards necessarily and the rest. What it's saying is people are actually putting life ahead of work in their hierarchy of identity, which I think is probably pretty healthy in the end, Um, but it's causing a lot of problems for companies because all of a sudden they're like, hey, what happened to the productivity I had before? What happened to the, I'll come in at seven, I'll leave at 10. Right now we're having to say, okay, if I'm going to have less of people's creative energy, less of their discretionary effort, how do I create a work system that makes higher impact, higher value out of less time? right? That's sort of the challenge of the company.
0: So like when I think about my our parents generation, like it was more like work was like confined. It was, you go to work, you come home after six, there's no, there's no access after hours, you know, vacations were vacations. And then when you and I were coming up in our careers with the advent of Blackberries that eventually turned into iPhones, like 24 seven connectivity. Like I remember my first dial up getting access, being able to log in at Disney when I was at home. Yeah. And now all of a sudden the work hours are like crazy. And some of the things that you're talking about with um, wanting to put life first, like that's something like midlife people kind of identify at a certain point, like, hey, what did I do? I you know gave up my life while I was climbing the ladder. But now it sounds like it's everybody is saying that. Even the younger generations are saying, no, life first, work second. You know, the other thing that you talked about is also like the transparency and recruiting You know, and what does the transparency of recruiting look like, especially when you're dealing with trying to create a culture and environment where everything's virtual? Like, how do you create, how do you create transparency in recruiting and how do you create some sort of promise around our work environment when everybody's working at home now?
1: Let me take the first question first, because I love it, right, is, you know, technology often drives innovation in humanity, right? It just does like think about the combustible engine way back when that is the very reason we are no longer living in the same neighborhood that our parents and our grandparents grew up in beautiful sort of, um, ability for us to see the world, but it required us then to think about how do I establish community in different ways. Right. And we had, we played a lot of catch up over the last few generations there, same things happen in work right now. Right, our problem wasn't that our companies were inherently asking more of us. Our companies always ask more of us. Right. I don't know a company in the world that's not going to take everything you're willing to give. Right. But here's the deal: is before the onset of like always on little phones we can put in our purse or our pocket, we were hard to find. Like once we left, we were gone. There was really nothing you could do. And so what we have to realize is that it's not just the company's fault they've always taken as much as we're willing to give. The thing is now is we have to reestablish how that technology is both utilized by us and can be a net benefit for us because for all our complaints about it's 24 seven, it's 365 days a week, we also can work from anywhere, right? There's nothing stopping you and I from shooting this same podcast when I'm, you know, traveling with my wife somewhere and you're, you know, hanging out in Denver, Colorado, like we can, we can do this anywhere now. That's beautiful. We just haven't sort of gotten a place where we can get the whole thing to be in harmony, which right. takes everybody. So it's just, I, I don't think it's anyone's fault. I just, I get really excited about now it's possible. So how do we catch up to the technology and figure out a way to renew our energy when it's 24 seven, always on. We got to figure that out. You know, I think the, I think the second piece about recruiting, which is a leap is I've been enamored by this for a long time right? This idea of, of recruiting process are just first dates, right? I'm not actually as a candidate coming with my real hair a mess. Here's who, who I am on a random Tuesday morning. I'm coming with my best version of myself, right? So I'm not really totally authentic about what you're going to get, who I am, how I work, what my life is. i you know, there's a lot of those things we just don't expose. And companies did the same thing, right? I think at some point they say, oh my God, no one's going to come here if I tell people what it's really like to to live and work in the system. But here's the deal is if you hire them, they're eventually going to live and work in the system. So why not tell them what it looks like right now? Give them a realistic job preview. They're still going to come. The ones that like that brand of working, they're still going to come. And they're not going to lose all their engagement once they get there and realize what they were promised versus what they got was very different. Um, and it's just a problem I see again and again through the interviews was this sense of, Man, when I applied for this job, they told me it was going to be these 25 things I was going to be doing. They told me it was all these values, all these kinds of leaders, and I got really excited about it, and I bit. And then I got there on the first day, and I knew immediately. And so almost in every wrong fit situation, Betsy, when I asked the question, when did you know, all of them knew during the interview. They knew They, the all- they knew it was a wrong fit during the interview. Wow. And, and I said, I said, so why did you do it? And they're like, cause it was a better title. It was a bigger paycheck. I just liked being valued and wanted. Um, and it caused me to cover up, ignore many little pieces of information that told me exactly what I was going to get. So it's, it's also a question of, you know, we don't pay attention to all the data when we're motivated to make a decision. Same with consultants to bring it back to consultants, like when we want a job, right? We will ignore all the other things that would tell us this is a bad decision for us right now. Because once once your mind's motivated to make a decision, you know, you end up under confirmation bias, which is the only data you're going to see is the data that allows you to say yes to the client. Even when you might have a vacation planned, or you might have, you know, other responsibilities, you might have too many things going on, you just don't see it. And so you end up getting yourself in a place where like, I should have never taken that job.
0: And there are signs, like I have a, I have an article I wrote on like, you know, 10 signs that a client is worthy of you, you know? And one of the things that people get so worried about is like, oh, well, you know, like I got to get techniques for a client who's ghosting me, you know? And one of my thoughts is like, if a client is ghosting you now, they're going to ghost you later. Like this, these are important data points. You know, if somebody is trying to, you know, go like just, you know, just uh, get you to lower your fee without lowering what you're going to do that's going to be somebody who's always going to be taking advantage of you like and it is important to pay attention to all of those things From the get go, you could tell it an intro call, like I could tell when I'm doing an intro call, like if somebody's going to be a really great client and somebody I could do really great work with, but then sometimes it's like, oh, no, I could help everybody, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, they really want to work with me, you know, and (laughs) then you just go and do it. And it's like, oh, this is a really difficult client, and you just know it, because you dread when they show up in your calendar It's like, oh, I got this person today. (laughs) Okay. All right, got it get my energy. Like you were saying, getting distracted by all those other things. So I think that there's a lot of power in that, that you're talking about is like paying attention. That feels like a timeless type of thing that no matter what, always pay attention. But when you're dealing with the, like paying attention to a work environment, let's bring it back to like, what's today. So I'm interviewing someone on zoom, and then I might go to a company where the majority of the workforce is also on zoom. Like, how do you discern is this like a quality work environment for me when everybody's working somewhere else? And if you're a consultant who's trying to help companies make decisions between, do we, do, do we work all in the office? Do we do mostly virtual? Like, how do you address all of this kind of stuff in this virtual working
1: world? Yeah, I, I mean, I always start with this, Betsy, is that you know, the first thing I wanna to talk to people about is how does work get done when your company's at its best? Right. How do you collaborate, solve problems, kick off team meetings, give feedback, develop people? Because that's the conversation about how we work. You answer that question, it gets really clear really fast whether you should be virtual, you should be hybrid, or frankly, you should just be back in the office. Right. We're having that location conversation way before we actually get to the nitty-gritty about how do we work in order at our best. And so I always start there with my clients. I'm like, hey, just tell me how you work and then let's talk about location. Mm. right? Because until you do that, you don't know. And if you're just jumping straight to technology or straight in the office, you're not maximizing people's time. The second thing I'd say is, hey, you know what? I've worked in virtual companies almost my entire life. Like I've rarely had a team that was in the same location other than Disney. So when I was at Mars, I mean, 80,000 person organization that had a corporate headquarters of 100, right? So that all the leaders were spread out. And this was back in the 90s and, or 2000s. And so- What I'd say is, hey, let's not get caught on the idea that culture can only be created if I'm face to face with you, right? The truth is, is that the touch points change. The importance of the small moments we do have change. And if you only do the transactional work, then you are going to erode your culture super quickly. So, you know, if you're virtual, I'd say this, I'd say, hey, you still have 100 touch points with your employees every year. Thousands of them. Let's not say, let's say a thousand touch points. My question is, how are you using them? If you use them to transact, you're going to lose everybody. But in those moments, if you can find a few minutes to remind them why the world's better with the company in it, remind them how the company makes money and why your job is vital to that, remind them how we do work, and remind them of the promise that we're making to them for every day that they show up with all of their effort then you know what, it doesn't matter, right? The thing is, is that we're not having those conversations with our people because we're so stressed. We have so little time. We just wanna you know, maximize the moment to get as much done as we can so we can get to the next call because we're not managing the ways of working. So I'm kind of a simple guy and that's what I see every day. I'm like, God, that's like, if we could do that, if we could realize that culture isn't about proximity, yes, it helps for some companies, It's about how are we curating, creating, and crafting the spaces that we do have in a way that net increases the energy and engagement of people on the other side. I just don't think we do that.
0: It feels like it goes back to what you said earlier. It's like everything has to come from some level of self-awareness. Like I'm aware of who I am and I'm aware of what kind of environment, what kind of people I want to attract. I'm going to be as transparent as possible about the reality so that somebody who is a right fit can make a decision and I'm not going to... Um, you know, love bomb them in the interview by making them think like, oh my gosh, you're the best person ever. You should so be in my company and not be realistic about what's going on. You know, making decisions about how do we do our best work and really being mindful about all those touch points, like every single touch point, you almost in this virtual hybrid kind of world, you almost have to be even more conscious and aware Of what you're doing to foster that environment and all of those little touch points and making sure that they're all perfect.
1: 100%, Betsy. And the other thing that I would say is hey, whether you're a talent or a consultant, one of the things that I do in my world is I'm like, before I sign up with a client, because most of the contracts I'm signing are are sort of longer term, is I'm like, let's do a piece of work together. Mm. Two hours out of my time, I want to figure out if I can work with you. Because if that works, then you know, you're going to be client with me for two years because we're going to do all this great stuff. But if, if I don't know that that works, if you and I can't have a really compelling debate, a conversation, you can have your mind changed. I can have my mind changed by you, then we're sunk. And I'd much rather know in a free hour than I would come to find out after investing 60 hours in this place, and only find that we're just, you know, we're worse off than we started. So,
0: yeah, you're, you're making me realize, like, why I do what I do with my um, my partnership setup processes. I always teach people like to go slower, and I think that's a big reason. So, um, how do people get a hold of you? How do they get a hold of your your like and learn more about your work? And how do people get to buy your book?
1: Super generous question. Uh, the book's available everywhere, so you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you like to shop for books. And the title
0: uh, is Wrong Fit, Right Fit, Why the Way We Work Matters.
1: Matters more, more than, than ever. ever. That's the matters title.
0: more than ever, yes.
1: Uh, you can find me at www.wrongfitrightfit.com. Um, you can find extra resources, things like that, on the website. And then I also have a weekly newsletter for talent, mostly. But consultants might find it interesting as well. It's called Monday Matters. It's mondaymatters.substack.com. And it's meant to just be a little dose of inspiration, practical tips to help make your week a little bit better.
0: So we talked about a lot of different things as it relates to timeless principles to make sure that you have an alignment between you and your culture and that the culture makes sure that they hire talent that's in alignment with that. And we talked about just some of the emerging trends and how to adapt to them. And we talked about system thinking, we talked about all kinds of things. Is there anything else that you wanna tell me about what it takes to create um, a healthy culture today? Anything about ensuring that there's the right fit talent in your organization? Anything about consultants and coaches and how they can adapt to these changing times? And I'm just not asking you the right question.
1: Betsy, you asked me great questions. I think the only thing I'd end with is this, that you know, it's a really hard time at work it's a really hard time in the world, um, you know, and this is the time for people who like hard things. And so as a as a consultant or as a leader, I have a great deal of empathy for both those groups because those jobs are really hard. And the one thing we can't do is we can't cater to the lowest common denominator. You have to come into those roles with courage. It's the only hmm. way anything's going to get better is we've got to have bigger solutions, bolder, harder conversations with the people who are inherently creating the world right now. Um, and that's always been my pursuit is like, hey, you know, it's changed the world one conversation at a time. But if I'm unwilling to have the hard ones as a consultant, then there's no way they're going to turn around and have the hard ones in their company.
0: I love that. And I love the idea, like what you said earlier around, we failed to develop this next generation of leaders who are prepared for this kind of environment that we're in. And it's almost like we have to catch up, you know, figure out how do we develop, coach, motivate leaders who are capable to meet this time with courage, but then also almost have our, have a view for the future of saying, all right, what would be the next iteration? that we need to be able to set things up and we need to think about what we do differently. We can't be stuck in our old ways of doing it because then our companies will be as well. So, I love that. That's right. So, um I highly recommend Andre's book. Um I knew he was brilliant back in those back in the <laughs> early 20, 2000s when we worked together, but now I really know how brilliant he is and oh. it's just been such a pleasure. It's been so fun like connect reconnecting but also really getting to know you at a deeper level. This has just been a huge pleasure for me. So thank you so much for being on the show.
1: That's it. It's been, it's been a joy. I mean, I just like, thanks for providing this kind of service to consultants and it's just been so fun to catch up. I look forward to the next one.
0: Well, thank you all for listening in on this episode of the Enough Already podcast, and I will see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire in you, please rate and review enough already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at betsyjordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.